We are beginning chapter 3 this week of 2 Corinthians as we go through this book verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, one of the major themes of this letter, if you haven't picked up on it already, is Paul's frustration with this church, (laughs) the church at Corinth, because there was that influential group there that was against him. They continually undermined undermound, underminded his authority as an apostle. Kind of like uh, trying to talk to somebody with a loud noise in the background, like a screaming baby or loud music or something. Um, That's kind of what this letter is like, where Paul is trying to communicate certain things to them, but every now and then he has to like break and address the noise in the background that's going on. I know some of you moms in here have gotten really good at talking with screaming babies in the background. (laughs) Um, But uh, for other people like me, it's really hard to concentrate when there are loud noises. And so Paul will kind of go down a train of thinking. He'll he'll start speaking towards something, and then he'll have to pause and say, now about those people, and he'll address them uh, because it's just this dynamic that runs over the whole letter. It's this noise in the background that exists throughout the whole letter. And so what I'd like to do this morning is pray and then jump into the passage, and I want you to listen for that noise that's just buzzing in the back. So let's let's pray and then get into the text. Father, thank You so much that we have this opportunity to look into Your Word and to consider what was going on at that time with this church. Lord, You have preserved for us an amazing Word here this morning, and I ask that each of us would hear You, that we would hear You through the Apostle, and that we would glean from it the lessons you want us to take away, that we would apply them to our lives, and that we would honor you through it all. Lord, we ask together this morning that I would not get in the way of your word, but that your word would be clear to your people, and we ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's start with the last verse of chapter 2, 2 Corinthians two seventeen, and I'll read through chapter 3, verse 3. Paul and his companions write, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What an amazing way to begin this new chapter. Um, Again, it's no secret, as we'll continue to see through this letter, that Paul had a strange relationship with the Corinthians. But He also had much love for the Corinthians, and I hope you saw that as we read through just that portion of the letter. As Robert Gramacki states in his commentary, Paul's fervent attachment to them was known and read by all men. His heart was an open book, not a closed diary. Other churches and preachers knew that Paul abundantly loved the church at Corinth. Like that irresistible middle child was that church at Corinth. They were always being ornery. They were always up to something that needed correction, but Paul loved them so much. 
And we observe in Paul, as we go through this letter, his continual address of the false teachers, this influence that was in Corinth that was spoiling the church. And Paul was far away. Remember, he's writing a letter. This isn't something that was written down that Paul said to them in person. He was writing a letter. And it's extremely difficult to try to correct a problem in a local church when all you can do is write a letter and put it on a boat and send it to them. This is just a very difficult task that the apostle had in front of him. But this dynamic does run through the entire letter. Notice in verse 17 of chapter 2 that Paul says that there were many who were peddling the Word of God. Now, of course, this is true worldwide. There are many false teachers that have existed in human history all around the world. But in particular, I wonder if Paul knew that there were multiple or even many false teachers in Corinth, that they were a significant group that could be called many, who had come into the church to put down Paul and to lift themselves up. We could contrast and compare this use of the word many with chapter 2, verse 6, earlier in chapter 2, where Paul was talking about the church discipline that was enacted at the church in Corinth when he says, there was a punishment inflicted by the many. Your translation might say majority, but it's the same exact Greek word. There were many in Corinth who were willing to stand up and to exercise church discipline when the situation called for it. Yet there were also many peddlers of God's Word. Now, ideally, in a perfect world, all of the church would be willing to stand up for holiness and truth, and there would be no peddlers of God's Word. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice if our churches were perfectly holy, perfectly unified, and there were no false teachers anywhere that were doing anything nefarious to the Word of God? Well, heaven's coming. (laughs) Until then, here we are. And there needs to be a, a core group, if not everybody, there needs to be the many who are willing to stand up against false teachers because there are many peddling the Word of God. These false teachers apparently in Corinth always sought to commend themselves, and they were also apparently saying that that was Paul's fault, not theirs. Apparently, they were challenging him. We don't have, I keep saying apparently because we don't have this spelled out clearly for us, we're just using context clues, but notice how Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 3, do we need to commend ourselves again? Do you need a letter from somebody saying that we are legit? that we are worthy, because the false apostles were constantly showing off their letters, their commendations, and putting down Paul for not having any. It seems like they were charging Paul with pride, assuming he was some sort of rogue teacher instead of an apostle of the Lord's church. Well, what could Paul say? You know from your own experience in situations like this where there's complicated conflict, and all you can do is maybe write a letter, you know it can be very difficult to choose the right words. Paul wanted to defend himself, and he does go on to defend himself, but he knew, of course, that no matter what he said, the false teachers would twist his words. So let's read verses 17 and 1 again with more of that context in mind. Paul says, "...we are not like many, peddling the Word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ 
in the sight of God. He's defending himself. But then he like almost catches himself in the very next verse and says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some need, i.e. the false teachers, letters of commendation to you or from you? Those who had slandered Paul prompted him to self-defense. They probably said he has no letters of recommendation. And those letters, by the way, weren't extraordinary. They were actually quite common. If you were to go back to the beginning of the church in Corinth, that's in Acts chapter 18, where we get that all spelled out, you'll see that Apollos, this young preacher who was relatively unknown to the churches, he was given by the apostles a letter of commendation so that when he went to Corinth, he would have this letter that they would know he was approved of by the apostles. And so they were used in that time, and they certainly played a role. And it seems as though the false teachers had their own letters of commendation. Those who were in the church at Corinth, they were able to tell the church, hey, look, we've been approved. Here's our little letter. And Paul, does he have such a thing? Who gave Paul permission to come in and preach and have authority in the church? Now, of course, Paul reminds us at the start of each of his letters, right, that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's called of God. But false teachers, they just look on the outside. They're not genuine. They are all about appearances. And I wouldn't be surprised if these false teachers in Corinth showed them their letters of recommendation that they picked up from who knows where, and they were trying to get letters from the Corinthians too, so that when they went on to their next church and they went to the next place where they would cause the church harm, they would have letters from Corinth saying, look, they approve of us too. Because this is what false teachers do. They can't just stay in one place indefinitely. Eventually, their sin will find them out. And as false teachers bounce from one place to another, don't you know they like to talk about the people that they've associated with? They like to talk about the people that approve of them. They like to show off the references part of their resume because they don't have character to fall back on. They don't have doctrine to fall back on, but they can appeal to the fear of man that exists naturally in our flesh And they can say, well, look, this church likes us. Why don't you take us? It happens even still today. They would build their reputation, move on from one place to the next, always showing off their letters of commendation. Well, this made a strange predicament for Paul and his companions. They were seeking the favor of those who should have known better. And to do... um, To give an illustration, I'm going to do something that I don't often do, perhaps I've never done, and I'm going to share an extended story, an extended illustration that may help help us grasp the context of what's going on. Because again, it is a major theme in the letter. It's the undercurrent that flows through the letter, this relationship dynamic. And so I'm going to share this story with you that will hopefully illustrate what was going on in Corinth. There was a young man who, upon graduating high school was interested in entering the world of finance. He enrolled at the state university and got through all of his general education courses by the skin of his teeth, as perhaps some of us did. He finally got to the real meat of his degree program when he got to know a man named Mr. Pritchard, who was one of his undergraduate professors. The young man was very earnest about his desire not only to graduate, but to be very much involved in the financial industry. His problem was that he was not a natural talent. 
He had no real experience in the field, and quite honestly, he could hardly work a tin key. But Mr. Pritchard saw something in the young man and invested much of his own time and energy to ensure that the young man would be a success. In fact, Mr. Pritchard spent the last 18 months of this young man's undergraduate career mentoring him so that he would not only graduate, but do so with distinguished marks for his work and financial studies. After his time at the university, the young man went off to earn his MBA in accounting and was hired by one of the biggest accounting firms in the world. The young man was in a great position to succeed, having a wealth of influences in his life on a day-to-day basis, along with many international clients. Along this journey, the young man was most heavily influenced by some seasoned financiers who not only knew their trade well, but they knew the tricks of their trade well. Many of their practices were shady at best, but they knew exactly how to land the big clients and carve out their own success. Before he could even understand what was happening, the young man was on the fast track to early retirement, though his ethics suffered dearly. One day, while in his office, the young man got a call on his office phone. Mr. Pritchard was on the other line. This shocked the young man, not only because it had been nearly a decade since he had heard his mentor's voice, but because it was so difficult to reach his office line directly. The many levels of people working under him were supposed to be better safeguards than that. To his complete shock, Mr. Pritchard was calling in search of employment. He had heard of his former student's career status and thought it might be possible to get a position, even a modest one, with the firm. Pritchard was getting close to retirement but wasn't quite ready to call it quits. He was ready to leave the university, though, and thought a short stint back in the real world would be a great way to bridge the gap between where he stood and the full retirement that awaited him. The young man knew of many modest positions available in the company, and quite frankly, they were positions for which Mr. Pritchard was overqualified. Yet he told his college professor that he would need to send in a resume, and it was required that some rather impressive references be listed. Mr. Pritchard replied that he didn't think that should be necessary, since the young man, of course, knew him well and could vouch for his abilities. The young man informed him that he must not be aware of the shoulders he was rubbing those days, and that life in the financial world had become a bit more complicated than Mr. Pritchard could ever know. Though he earnestly tried, Mr. Pritchard was unable to remind the young man of how he learned most of what he knew about the principles of accounting from him, and the phone call ended quite poorly. Sometime later, Mr. Pritchard was surprised to get a phone call from the young man apologizing for the attitude he had given him in his prior conversation. The young man's shady business ethics had been found out, and He had lost his privileged status with the firm. His career was rocky, to say the least, but he was once again in a position to learn, grow, change, and move forward with a better vision. Well, I hope this story reflects, using some real-world examples, a bit of the relationship that Paul had with the Corinthians, and that they had a track record of, and they were prone to rejecting his influence as an apostle in favor of those so-called apostles who actually sought to harm the church with their impurity. Paul was criticized by the false teachers for not issuing references, as we just learned. That's basically what these letters of commendation were, references on a resume, as though Paul was some random itinerant preacher instead of the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though many of the Corinthians, like the young man from the story, had since repented of their support of slandering Paul, they still needed to be reminded that they were his references. He didn't need to send them letters. They were his letter. 
And that's exactly where Paul goes in this letter of 2 Corinthians when he says at the start of verse 2, do we need to send you letters? You are our letter. What an amazing statement. You are our letter. You see, out of this complicated relationship that Paul had with the church, we see some amazing theological truths emerge about relationships in Christ. And that first statement is the the first big theological truth, that the church at Corinth was Paul's letter of commendation. The church at Corinth was the reference on Paul's resume. He didn't need to call in some third party. He needed to just point at the fact that this church existed. What an amazing statement. What more evidence could the Corinthians need other than the fact that they existed as a church? This apostle, who was used by God to start this church, some of them were firing back at him saying, well, how do we know that you're really the real deal? And Paul is basically saying, hmm, look in the mirror. You've been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been placed in the body of Christ. You are a church in a very pagan environment. You are our letter of commendation. This is not so much Paul boasting as it is he's pointing out the obvious. It says in verse 3, you are a letter of Christ. He says in verse 2, you are our letter. In verse 3, you are a letter of Christ. The Lord had made these people a witness to the gospel. They were saved by Jesus Christ and they were being sanctified by Jesus Christ. And they were a letter that was read and known by all men. Isn't that something? Read and known by all people that they could look at this church and say, they know Jesus. As A.T. Robertson has said, professing Christians are the Bible that men read and know. Isn't that so true? Professing Christians are the Bible that men read and know. Your life is a testimony to Jesus Christ. You are a letter of Jesus Christ read and known by all men. That's the calling that's upon your life to be an ambassador of Jesus in the world. The Corinthians were the work of Christ through these missionaries, a continual testimony to all men. You see that in the second part of verse 2, known and read by all men. So Paul's point here was Christ's work in them and through them. As uh, Homer Kent said in his commentary, this is Christ's letter, but Paul and the missionary companions, they were the copyists for Christ. They were the ones through whom Christ built this church, the missionaries who were sent to Corinth. MacArthur, in his commentary, summarizes Paul's point by saying, the only testimonial the apostle needed to verify the divine source of his labor, apart from the obvious virtue of his life, was the reality that the Corinthians had been saved and were being sanctified through the truth he preached and taught. You are our letter Paul says. What an amazing reality. But there's also a deep personal connection here too. You see in the passage, Paul says that you are written in our hearts. That's not a phrase that we use, is it? You've been written in our hearts, a reflection of how deeply these men cared for the church in Corinth. It says in verse 2, you are our letter written in our hearts. They carried about this work 
with them everywhere they went. In the second half of verse 3, Paul says, you have been cared for by us. And this was not just in the initial work, that's not just when they were in Corinth physically at the start of the church, but continually this church is being cared for by Paul and the missionary companions. Look back at chapter 1 with me just to refresh you on this amazing comfort passage. The language that Paul used in chapter 1 verses 6 and 7 that reflects his care for the church. In 2 Corinthians 1.6, Paul says, But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. Doesn't it sound like they cared for this church? Continually, they were in their hearts as they cared for this church. Your translation might say, and it would be better if it did, that you've been served by us, not cared for by us, but served by us. That's the literal wording there. The Corinthians had received truthful, loving laborers in the gospel. They were served by these men. And this can be contrasted with the false teachers in the church. This can be contrasted with those who twist the Word of God, because those who peddle the Scriptures, you know what's true about them? They don't care about you. They don't serve you. They serve themselves. And even though it may not have been immediately apparent to the church at Corinth, the the contrast between false teachers and true teachers, believe you me, over time, false teachers will always show themselves. They will be exposed in one way or another. Let me remind you from Proverbs 11, verses 5 and 6, what we're told about how sin finds us out. The righteousness of the blameless will smooth his way, but the wicked will fall by his own wickedness. The righteousness of the upright will deliver them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. There's a promise in there. Those who are wicked treacherous, evil, they will be found out. And Paul says, we're just here to care for you. We're just here to serve you. And they proved it by the way that they lived. It wasn't love that was in word only, but it was love that was in deed. And then he adds this amazing theological concept to all of this in verse 3, when he says that this letter was written not with ink, but written with the Spirit of of the living God. An amazing phrase. Paul here is further emphasizing the work of God in the Corinthians. They were not man-made. The church was not built by human hands. The church existed and their salvation was real because of the work of God in their hearts, the Spirit of the living God writing this letter. They were cared for by Paul and company, but the letter was written by the Spirit of God. And the the obvious question in the face of these letters of commendation or the resume references is this, and I think this is what Paul is saying, who needs ink when you have the demonstrable power of God? Who needs a letter that's typed up? Print it out, put it in a nice envelope, even print it on the resume paper, that really fancy stuff, and shipped first class. Who needs that? 
when you have the power of the Spirit of God. The proof about what was really going on here, according to Paul, was in the power, in the power of the Spirit. The testimony of the Corinthians, the fact that they existed as a church, the gifts that existed there, that the Spirit was working through them, evidencing their salvation. I mean, what's the, what is real ministry verification? As you guys all interact each and every week, you're interacting with other ministries that exist, not just our church. You're listening to people and watching videos and all that. What is the real verification of a ministry? Is it that I say they're great? No. I mean, I I don't want to say that teaching and discernment and all that doesn't play any role, but that's not the final word, is it? It's not that someone can rack up a bunch of impressive references and say, well, look, I'm supported by, you know, George Clooney and uh, Bill Gates and yada, 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 go down the list. Well, look at me. Don't you accept what I have to say? That is not where the verification lies. The verification of a ministry depends on the power of God. What does this person do with the Word of God? What's the result of this person's teaching? You know, the Bible talks about that fruit stuff, right? What's the fruit here? Are people becoming humble servants of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are people knowing more about the Lord Jesus? Giving themselves over to His Lordship? Are people seeking to win others for Jesus Christ? Do people prioritize the glory and honor of God above themselves? Is that the result? Because to me, that says a whole lot more than my neighbor listens to him and loves him. I don't know anything about your neighbor, and frankly, I don't care. I care about Jesus. And what does the teacher do with Jesus? This is not the first time Paul has sought to communicate this to the Corinthians. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just the book right before this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, where Paul admits that externally there is weakness. If you're looking for impressive names or impressive performance, Paul don't got it. But look at what he says he has. 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but, here's the kicker, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, or you could say on the letters of commendation, but rather on the power of God. Paul's concern was always that the power of God would do the work. Paul didn't want anything to be the result of his own power. How long is something going to last if it exists because of your power? About for your lifetime, and that's about it. Uh, Solomon reminds us in Ecclesiastes, someone else is going to come along and mess it all up. But if the result of your ministry is the power of God, the result of your relationships, your efforts to tell people about the Lord Jesus, your concerns for your children, for your family, for your neighbors, if all of that depends on the power of God, you can sleep at night. You can rest assured. You don't have to scramble and seek new inventive ways that you can uphold someone else's faith. Not if it's the power of God. 
because He is faithful and He is all-powerful. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 10. This time we'll go forward a few chapters. 2 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about this some more. If there were letters, Paul wants them to reflect reality because he cares more about the power of God in reality than he does about ink on paper. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 7. Look at, look at this very plain speech rebuke of the Corinthians. You are looking at things as they are outwardly. What a, what a rebuke this could be for us today. If you're willing to hear what God is saying here through His apostle, this is a rebuke for us. You're just looking on the outside. Well, what's the solution? Let's keep reading. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ's, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ's, so also are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave me for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, listen to what people who look on the outside say. His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive, and his speech is contemptible. You can also, you can almost hear him say two out of five stars after that, right? Well, verse 11, Paul says, let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also in deed when present. Paul wanted the power of God to exist in reality. He didn't care if people talked about him. He didn't care if people could be really impressive through letters and he was unable to do that, or be really impressive in person and he was unable to do that. What he cared about was the fruit of his ministry based on the power of God that more people would be one to Jesus Christ, giving their lives to him for his service. Christian credibility is not primarily found in man's judgment or man's performance, but rather in God's power. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, you know that when we came to you, it was in the power of the Spirit of God. And he tells them how they could know that. He gives them exhibit A. And it wasn't that people were floating around and glowing. It wasn't that, hey, remember that one night, that sermon really rocked, or the praise band really rocked the house. No. His example was, you turned from idols to serve the living God. Are you looking for the power of God? You'll find it in humble foot-washing service. You'll find it in love that is selfless. You'll find it not in self-aggrandizing, showing off, drawing attention to yourself. You'll find it in the fruit of a ministry that lasts for years and even generations. So Paul is basically here saying, who cares about impressive references when it comes to ministry? We have the power of God. And he's actually setting up another contrast here. If you run your eyes over the, the next verses, really seven and following, he's setting up a contrast between his ministry and Moses' ministry. And we'll get into that in the next couple of weeks. Um, he's going to be talking about the surpassing glory of the new covenant as opposed to the old covenant. And we'll come back to that, this verse even, verse 3, and address that topic more. But I want to finish today by looking at verses 4 through 6 and talking about Christian adequacy. I was just talking about Christian credibility. 
What's the credibility of the Christian? Well, it's the fruit of his ministry that reflects the power of God. What is Christian adequacy? Well, we'll hear about that in verses 4 through 6. Paul says, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Verse 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul had confidence in his adequacy, though his speech was contemptible, his appearance was unimpressive. He had confidence and assurance of his own adequacy in ministry because of the work of the Spirit of God and him beholding the fruit of his ministry. He says that this confidence comes from God through Jesus Christ. There was no reason for him to be insecure or doubt God's calling, but he had absolute assurance in his ministry. He could look at the church of Corinth, and I think this is just really, really remarkable. He could look at the faith that existed in the church in Corinth and have confidence. And if there was ever a church that had imperfect faith, you better believe it was the church of Corinth. They were suing each other. They they had all kinds of sin issues. They were still entertaining pagan idols to a degree. There was was all sorts of strange stuff that was going on in Corinth that was bad and, and corrupting them in their sanctification. But Paul, when he saw them, he saw still, even if from our perspective it was hanging on by a thread, a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ that they weren't what they were. They used to be pagans. They used to be those who were following their own compass in life, elevating their own wisdom, making themselves out to be these exalted pagan worshipers. And now they're appealing to Jesus. And don't you know it does take time for people to change? (laughs) It really takes time. I was just listening to an interview this week um, on uh, Joe Rogan's show, which I'm not advertising here, okay? I think there are versions that maybe use the bleep button, and I would say just use those versions uh, because he needs a bleep button. But uh, he was interviewing a, a man, 58 years old, who just became a Christian. And he still had a mouth like a sailor. He still had all sorts of ideas that were wrong. But you know what he said? He was just totally mesmerized by the gospel. The fact that Jesus existed, that He rose again, that He can't deny it, and that He wants to read the Word of God. And there were all sorts of things that He said that it's like, oh man, you, I hope you're in a church, you know, <laughs> and I'll pray for your pastor uh, because, wow, there's a lot going on. But He had a testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Corinthians, I think, were in a very similar spot They had a testimony, and there were new people, surely, coming to know the Lord year after year. And Paul is bearing with them. And the fact that people are coming to know the Lord gives him confidence. He says all the way back in chapter 1, verse 15, that he had confidence in them. And that's because he saw the Spirit of God at work in giving them a testimony of the gospel. And so Paul has this reason to feel adequate, this reason to feel sufficient, able, He had this security and assurance, even in the face of false teachers, 
that God was at work and that His ministry was bringing about fruit. God gives us a good conscience in this life as we give our lives over to Him and we're led by the Spirit of God. He gives us a good conscience and He allows us to behold the fruit of our lives and the fruit of our ministry. And in that way, we can get to confidence and assurance in ministry. It's the only way. We can have no confidence in our own work. We can have no confidence in our flesh. You see that in verse 5? As Paul here is saying he has confidence, he's sure to quickly clarify, not because of ourselves. We have confidence as Christian ministers, but not because of ourselves. I'd like to remind you what Paul said in Philippians 3. This is verses 2 through 4 of Philippians chapter 3, where he wrote to that church saying, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus rather, and put no confidence in the flesh. What a statement. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul says he had all the pedigree, he had all the reason. You want to talk resumes? Pharisee of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin. He was trained by the the best teachers in Judaism. He had a resume, but he had no confidence in the flesh. Zero. And he says here in our passage today, verse 5, he has no adequacy in himself. Not that we are adequate in ourselves. So last week he asked the question, if you run your eyes up to chapter 2, verse 16, just a few verses back, He says, who is adequate for these things? He asks the question. And this week, he gives us an answer. Not us. Who is adequate for Christian ministry? Who's adequate to go do battle for the Bible? Who's adequate to go out and to uphold the gospel in the face of false teaching? Not us. Not in and of ourselves. We don't look at ourselves and say, well, naturally God chose me because I'm so strong and wise. 1 Corinthians 1, his first letter, he blew that out of the water and he says, God chose you because you're the opposite. And he's shaming the wisdom of the world because you're dumb. But now you preach the excellencies of Jesus. But now you can spill forth the word of God. But now because of the power of the Spirit, you can uphold God's revelation in the face of a dark and dying world. You can be a light. You can be an ambassador for Jesus because He has made you adequate. You're you're passive in this whole process, you see. You aren't actively working on yourself so that God will use you. You're coming to God empty-handed and He equips you. He qualifies you. He makes you able to reach others for Christ. And this is perhaps the most difficult lesson for people to learn, that we are not naturally adequate that we are, as one of my friends likes to say, utterly dependent creatures. We are thoroughly, utterly dependent, aren't we? But how often we fall back like the young man in my story to just thinking we're self-sufficient, we're full of ourselves, we're looking around and saying, we're accepted by this group, we're accepted by that group, they have this view of me. And we think our sufficiency comes from us because we've built our own resume. Paul says no. As someone who was a leader in Judaism and now he's a leader in the church, 
He says, I've got nothing on the table that I brought myself. But it all comes from God. Notice he uses the past tense in verse 6, that we have been made adequate. It's something that has happened in us. You see, when God calls you and draws you to faith, when He causes you to be born again to a living hope, He doesn't leave you hanging. But from that moment forward, He's equipping you. You're becoming more and more adequate. You're becoming a sufficient minister of the gospel. Let me remind you of a couple more passages. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Paul says that they give thanks to God the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Every false religion out there will teach you that you have to qualify yourself. Only biblical Christianity says you come to God and say, qualify me. I got nothing. And you are comprehensively passive in your own qualification. He qualifies you on the merits of Jesus. Here's a passage we often forget about, but it's absolutely amazing. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. It says, Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a good passage to memorize. The great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of Jesus, you're being equipped from the inside, God at work in you, being equipped for every good thing, to do His will, to please Him, and to reach the lost and dying world. In this, our confidence is through Christ toward God, as Paul says. And we have this confidence as servants. Look at our passage for today again. Verse 6, He made us adequate specifically as servants, ministers of the gospel, slaves of God. This is, this is what our adequacy leads to. We have been equipped to serve. We have not been equipped to make much of ourselves. We have not been equipped for some kind of false self-confidence in the flesh. We've been equipped for servant confidence, not self-confidence as the world calls it today. You've been equipped for servant confidence. You can be confident in your ministry, which is what you do for other people. God hasn't equipped you to be puffed up about yourself. God hasn't made you adequate to feel all the warm and fuzzies in your heart about just how special you are. God has saved you and equipped you and made you sufficient for service. And you wouldn't get this by so much of Christian media today, particularly what you get on a lot of Christian radio. There is a big difference between self-confidence and servant confidence. And God has equipped us for the latter, that we would be equipped as slaves, not as masters, but that we'd be equipped to wash feet, to serve by the Spirit in the truth of the gospel. The gospel, of course, being 
the power of God to, to salvation. That's what Romans 1.16 says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God, the power of God to salvation. And all of this, Paul is telling us here, is in contrast with the legal code, which is the law that you find in the Old Testament. The law brings death, and the law brings death from the outside. Paul here is saying the gospel, the new covenant, brings life, and the life comes from the Spirit who is inside. You see the difference? It's a big difference. You have commandments written on stone that are outside of you, and all they can do is condemn you. They can never equip you. That's the problem with the law. It gives the demand, but not the ability. And there it is. There's the demand. But what's so new and hopeful and refreshing about the gospel? It's that it's been set aside. The legal demand has been taken out of the way, Colossians chapter 2, through Jesus Christ. And now you are free to live for God. There doesn't stand between you and God a legal code condemning you. But you've been totally, fully accepted in the person of Jesus Christ, and now you have the Spirit of God leading you, guiding you into the life of Christ, which is higher than the law. You have the Spirit of God leading you into love. The law of liberty, James says. The law of Christ, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. This is your new life. It's the Christ life. And it starts from within. And that is the benefit for the Christian. And we'll cover that in much more detail again over the next couple of weeks. So how are we equipped as Christians? How are we made adequate? Well, we are adequate because we have experienced grace and truth through Jesus Christ. If you have come to know the Lord Jesus, you've come to know grace. You've come to know truth. You've come to know the way and the life. Our takeaway here as Christians must be to pursue true Christian credibility, which is the power of God, the fruit of our ministry, the humble service, and rest upon the true adequacy of the Lord. Pursuing the power of God in Christian relationship and service and resting in God's works of sovereign grace. Your godliness, your marriage, all of your relationships, your ministry, all of it depends on true Christian credibility, which is the power of God through you, and Christian adequacy, which is God equipping you for service by His sovereign grace. All of life rests on this. If you are finding credibility or adequacy somewhere else, today's the day to repent. You won't have rest until you do. You won't have peace. You won't have joy until you find your credibility and your adequacy in God alone. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for this day and for the time that we've had in your word. We ask that you would help us to renew our minds with these truths, that we would change anything that we need to change. You'd point it out by your spirit where we have been thinking wrongly about our own credibility and sufficiency. Help us to rest totally and completely on you as we serve others for your glory alone. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.